0: Well, if I were to ask you to choose one word, and that's all you had, to describe the state of the affairs of the world that we live in, what types of words would you use? And no bad words here in church, all right? Some of you may say the word sad. Some of you would say troubled. Some of you may say it's crazy. Uh, Listen, if you chose the word peaceful uh, to describe the world we're living in, then the word I would use to describe you this morning is drunk, all right? And I'm not judging. I'm just saying it's early, okay? And so, certainly, when we look around, uh, there has been a difficult season we've all been living through. And so, if I had to choose one word to describe the world we've been living in, the word that I would choose would be the word conflict. It seems no matter where you look, uh, what your what environment you're in, conflict is the name of the game. And what I've experienced is this: that conflict can wear down even the most joyful of people over time. So here's the good news. The Bible is going to prove once again that it's incredibly relevant for the life that we're living in this moment of conflict. So if you've got a Bible or phone, your tablets, whatever you're using, turn with me to James chapter 4 this morning. The bad news is this, is that sin has tainted all of humanity. And any time that sin has uh, tainted something, it moves out from God's good design. And The end result of moving away from God's good design is always brokenness, and part of the brokenness that we experience in culture happens in the midst of deep, deep conflict, but the good news is that God didn't leave us without answers or hope on how to battle this conflict-filled world that we're living in, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore the wisdom of God, and we want to make the case that God's not really calling us to conflict resolution, where we just kind of figure out a way to tolerate each other or, you know, coexist with each other, that actually, if we understand it, what God is calling us to is a conflict revolution, where we view conflict totally different than what the wisdom of the world says, and we find hope in the wisdom of the Word of God. Now, if you're not familiar with the person James here in the book of Bible, here's the cliff notes. James is a real historical figure uh, who just happened to be the little brother of Jesus. And despite having an up close relationship with Jesus, James never actually identified as a follower of Jesus Christ until after the resurrection. Now, this isn't the Bible, so it's just me speculating. I think there was probably a little rivalry there. Can you imagine how many of you grew up in a house where it was clear that you were the favorite child? Would you just raise your, I got both my hands up, right? You know what that's like to live with someone where like they're the favorite child in the resentment that I have. Could you imagine being Jesus' brother? right? Jesus' room is never dirty. What's wrong with you, James? Right? Jesus never leaves the toilet seat up, James. Jesus cleans his plate. You know, all those things. And so for whatever reasons we don't know, he never actually became a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. So about 15 years later, uh, after Jesus had died and rose again, James is now pastoring a rapidly growing church in the city of Jerusalem. And nearly 2,000 years ago, James looks around his church that he's pastoring, and he begins to ask this question, why in the world is there so much conflict everywhere that I look? And so he decides to address the issue of conflict head on, and so we're going to pick that up here in James chapter 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 to get started this morning. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it has no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously Over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, one of the beautiful things about biblical truth is this if it's really true and what we're teaching is really true, then it'll hold up in any culture, across any covenant, and in any single context. And so, what that means is, we don't totally know what the experience that James was experiencing in his church. Were there lots of people in marital conflict? Were there lots of conflict between uh, children and their parents? Was there lots of fighting between other people? Was there conflict between their workplaces? The answer is probably D, all the above. But even though we don't know exactly the context of their conflict, these principles, because they're true, will transcend all of culture. And so if we're going to experience a conflict revolution, uh, the first thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is that you have to view conflict Redemptively. Now, that seems like an odd statement, does it not? Because most of the times when we talk about things being viewed as redemptive, we view them as positive things, redeeming qualities in other people. And the connotation of the word conflict is anything but positive. We think conflict is, for some of you, is the worst thing that can happen. But when you study it and understand it from the biblical perspective, what you learn is this, is that conflict is ap- ap- actually an opportunity, now, when you hear that conflict's an opportunity, some of you are thinking, yes, it is, to hide a body. Amen? So, why in the world do we say this is actually an opportunity? Because conflict draws out of us what we did not know was inside of us. Through the friction of conflict that happens in our lives all the veneer all the politeness all the varnish dust that we want people to see in our social media accounts conflict has a way like sandpaper of rubbing all that off and the real us is exposed and finally our heart is on display so conflicts draw out of us what we did not know was inside of us and in those moments that's probably the truest picture of what's really going on in our hearts because we can manage that for a while We can market that effectively again through social media where it's just a highlight reel. Just, by the way, do you know that what people put out there in social media is not the real life? It's just a highlight reel, right? I love they're putting out there these huge spreads they've had. Nobody's putting out there, hey, had cereal again for the fourth night in a row. Praise God, right? Look at our vacation pictures. Nobody knows. On the way there, I threatened to kill everyone in the car, Right? (laughs) glad you got that out, whoever that, that is. walk around with that inside, amen? But what happens is this. In conflict, it exposes what's really going on in our hearts because we become unrestrained emotionally in those moments. And what we learn is this, that when conflict exposes what's in our hearts, that the issue on the surface of conflict is not actually the issue at all. Over the years of pastoring for 21 years, I've had People come to my office and say, hey, we're, we're having conflict. There's this issue going on in our marriage. And I've told them over and over, that's actually not the problem in your marriage. And they've said, oh, actually, it is. That's why we're here. And I said, no, that's the, the issue that you think is there. But really what's going on is under the hood uh, in our hearts. And so where does conflict reside in all of us? You know what we think? It's with that other person. If they would just do this and I wouldn't do this and so the conflict is always somewhere outside of me. But what the Bible teaches here in James chapter 4 of just the opposite, that conflict really lies in the affections of my own heart. Go back to verse 1, and what does he say there? He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, again, if I were answering, I would say it's because someone else is being dumb, right? If they just see the world as I saw the world, we wouldn't have any conflict. I've noticed in my life, I think the world would be a better place if everyone were more like me. Have you experienced that? But what does he say after that? He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Then he gives the answer when he says this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And what's just as important as what he says there is what he doesn't say. He doesn't give any kind of reference to any external circumstance. He doesn't give any attention or acknowledgement to some other person. Matter of fact, he says the source of conflict is not outside of you. It's waging war inside of you is exactly what he's teaching. The racial conflict we're experiencing is not because of what someone said or or what they did. It's because someone didn't give me something that I desperately thought I deserved. And when that happens, guess what? It's on like Donkey Kong. Amen? And so he says, hey, the problem is not what's going on inside of you. It's what's going on inside of you. He says, your passions are at war within you. And so in conflict, we look around, or maybe we're experiencing conflict in our own lives. Don't be deceived into thinking that whatever you're fighting is actually the true issue. James clearly says in verse 1 that the problem is on the inside. There's a conflict battle on the outside because there's a war going on in the inside. Verse 1 is what he's saying. My experience in walking with people through conflict, all kinds of relational conflict, there's a tremendous amount of energy usually expended by, by someone trying to convince me that the conflict is because of the other person. That if all my kids were just a little more obedient, and that's a good thing, I just want to acknowledge that, right? If I just worked with better people, if my spouse were just, you know, this, this, like this spouse or fill in the blank, whatever it is, then I would have peace inside of me. And we always want to be convinced that somehow conflict re- rests outside of me. And what happens is the reason we spend so much energy is in conflict, if we're honest, because our prideful hearts, we don't often want to be reconciled. We want to be right. We've all had that moment in, in an argument where it clicks and the other person says something, and all of a sudden you realize, I'm wrong. And if you're wise, you know what you do at that point? Full steam ahead. Amen? Push the gas button down and just keep going. I shouldn't have said if you're wise, I should have said if you're a man. That's what I should have said there. And all that jockeying for being right instead of being reconciled, moves us away from pride, empty, and confession It leads to repentance, which facilitates reconciliation. Now, Here's a question. Is it wrong to want certain things in a relationship? Is it wrong to want to be loved? Is it wrong to want to be respected? Is it wrong to desire peace? No, of course not. As a matter of fact, when you study the scriptures, the Bible says that many of these desires are God-given desires. That God has wired us that way to desire those things. So the problem is not in and of the desires in themselves. The problem becomes when my God-given desires... Grow into self centered demands. This is a pattern of what we see. We've actually taught this over and over, and so we learn by repetition. So I'll share this principle with you again. Here's the formula desire grows into demand, which leads to punishment. Desire, demand, punishment. That's the formula for conflict. Desire, demand, punishment. Say that with me. Desire, demand, punishment. One more time with Pentecostal power, all right? Desire, demand, punishment. That's the progression he's laying out in the text. And verse 2, look what he says. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, which means I have to have this to be fully satisfied in my heart. And you can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. What he's saying is you have this desire, and all of a sudden that desire grew grew into a ruling desire, what we would call a demand. And so as a result of that, when that person could not meet your demands, you did whatever it took to punish them on the other side. And so he gives an extreme example in murder and a more common example in fighting and quarreling. Now, if you're like me, I'm deeply convinced that there's not a day in my life where I've ever been demanding right? (laughs) Not once. Ask our staff. Super easy to get along with, all right? Ask my children. But look at the progression. He says it starts off with a desire, and then it grows into demand. You know what another word for that demand is? It's an idol. And an idol is anything that I want more than God, to the point I'm willing to sin against the other person by punishing them through sinful anger or by removing myself, shutting them out emotionally. And so let me make this as simple as possible. The clearest indicator... That a desire has grown into a demand is the presence of punishment in relational conflict. Now, let me give you some examples of some God-given desires that in and of themselves are not bad things, but if we're not careful, they become ruling things or demands in our life. Let me just rattle off a few here. Comfort. I want comfort. I must have comfort. I deserve some rest and relaxation, and you better not hinder my ability to get it. Anybody ever come home from a long day at work and all of a sudden there's the slightest little irritation becomes an explosion in your house you know what's usually going on there I've worked hard all day I provide for our family I take care of our kids I work I do all these kind of things I deserve peace and quiet when I get home comfort can be a desire growing to man approval I want approval. I've got to have it. I deserve approval. You better give approval to me, or I'm going to punish you if you don't provide the approval that I need. Success, control that's a huge one. Now, you can add other things to this list, certainly. That's just a a small thing. But here's my guess this morning. If you just wrote down those four kind of things that are super common when it comes to conflict, my guess is if you could rewind the tape and go back to the last place or last season where you experienced a lot of conflict, my guess is it may fall into one of those four common categories, which in and of themselves is nothing wrong. It's when those desires grow into demands and when someone will not or cannot meet my demands they're going to experience punishment. And it may be my wrath outwardly. It may be shutting them out emotionally, inwardly. But no matter what you call it, it is punishment. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Amen. This is so important. I want you to grab this. No other human being can consistently provide those things for you that your heart wants, not even your spouse Your spouse, as wonderful as they are, listen, I've got the best wife in the room and I hope you would fight me afterwards. I wouldn't know. Look at this, right? You don't want any piece of this, all right? (laughs) But you know what your spouse, as wonderful as they are? They make a crummy savior. What happens is we take people and we turn them into functional saviors and, and the reason it never works is because no sinful person can perfectly complete Every need that you have. Listen, I don't care what Jerry Maguire said. No one completes you, all right? And the reason God's designed it that way, because the only person that's ever been uh, lived who can fully satisfy your heart is Jesus Christ. No one else can bear the weight of your heart's expectations, but he can. And so that's what happens in conflict. It's really an identity issue. When I don't understand who I am in Christ, that I'm going to look to external relationships or external circumstances to provide these things that I think will finally and fully satisfy my heart. And so prior to that conflict, we didn't know that was going on inside of us. We were limited in our spiritual growth. But conflict exposes what was actually in there. It exposes that, that we're trying to use something else other than Jesus to satisfy our hearts. And so really, what conflict is, as difficult as it may seem, it's not an oppor- or an obstacle for your spiritual growth. It's actually an opportunity because conflict puts your heart on display where you then can be honest and realign your heart where Jesus alone is offering the satisfaction that you desire. And so conflict is an Opportunity, And I know that some of you, like, oh, the, even the word conflict makes me nervous. Some people like conflict because they think they can win, right? Other people, they're what I call ostriches, right? If there's any hint of conflict, boom, head down in the sand. And hopefully when I bring my head up, it won't be there anymore. So conflict's actually an opportunity. So if we experience this revolution about conflict. But James just doesn't want to be theoretical. He wants to be practical, and so he actually gives us some warning lights on the dash so that we know the second principle is you have to check under the hood. Some of you have seen me roll in in my car. Uh, my car is just this week uh, rolled over 200,000 miles. 200,000 miles. So let's keep that thing on the road. The grace of God, All right. But right now, if you went out to my 2010 car and you fired up the ignition, uh, what you would find right now is two warning lights or engine lights are on on the dash. And so uh, I just have realized the driving an old car is hard sometimes, but to make life easier, uh, those warning lights to me are annoying. I just bought a check engine light repair kit. Have you seen those? It's just a black roll of electrical tape. The instructions are this. When light comes on, cut one inch off, put it right over that dash. Gone. Works like a charm. Now, is anybody else in the room driving a car that, that's got an engine or some kind of light on right now? Yeah. You know what? The people around looking at us, they're judging us. Amen? They're looking around going, he didn't get that fixed. You know why we don't get it fixed? I just want to ignore it because it's annoying. Number one, the car seems to be running fine. I've got one of my check engine lights on, some kind of emissions code. It's been on for seven years. I'm not exaggerating. I asked the mechanic, I said, what's that? He said, well, it's your emissions. And he said, well, since they did that, you did away with e-check or whatever that was, he's like, I wouldn't worry about it. I said, praise God, I'm not. You know why else I ignore it? Because it's expensive. Tape's cheaper. Now. What's James saying here? What James is saying when he moves in this passage is this. There are some behaviors that show up in your life and in my life that when they're present, they they seem to be the real issue, but they're not the real issue. What they are is check engine lights. These are check engine lights to say, hey, something's going on under the hood. You need need to take take a look inside of there because these are just the warning lights that something is amiss under the hood of your heart. So that's why we say all the time, that behavior is not the most important thing. All behavior is, is an indicator or the overflow of what's going on in your heart. And so James speaks into that and gives a, just rattles off some of these. I'm just going to run through them quickly, but they're right here in the text, so I don't want to skip over them. So what are some potential warning lights that James says, hey, if these are present in your life, there's something going on under the hood. So the first one he lists is lust. Look back at verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? How many of you would say, hey, the first Bible I ever owned, or maybe the Bible used today, is the the old King James Bible? Anybody say that's what I cut my teeth on, right? Well, here's the reality. In the King James Bible, uh, it has the word in there. uh, The word is lust in that translation. Uh, Some other translations use passions or desires, but here's the thing. Desires can actually be good things, right? And so the word lust there is the better word choice there because what it is, it's saying, hey, there's some kind of desire here that sin got a hold of it and it twisted into something else. And so lust is a God-given desire turned into an insatiable beast that consumes all of our thoughts and says this, I cannot be satisfied until blank happens in my life. And so lust is not just down to the limited part of what we think of it sometimes in the arena of of sexual temptation. It's lust after anything. It's anything that says, hey, until this is in my life, whatever it is, I cannot be satisfied. And so it consumes all my thoughts, all my energies, all my activities. I'm willing to realign my calendar and my finances until I obtain it. And so what James is saying, hey, there's a warning light going off. Something under the hood. And so verse 1 and 2, he talks about lust. Verse 2, he talks about self-reliance. Look at the end of verse 2. What's he say? You do not have because you don't ask. And so what's he describing? He's describing a life of prayerlessness. And what's behind a life of prayerlessness is pride. Pride always says, I have all the resources I need. I have all the experience, I have all the intellect, I have all the education, I have all the wisdom that I need, but prayer is an open acknowledgement that I don't have any of those things, that I'm totally dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ, and so I go to him humbly in prayer. And so what he's saying, hey, prayerlessness is a check engine light. Something is wrong under the hood, and it's pride when it's connected to prayerlessness, and guess what? Pride will get you into all kinds of fights. Third thing he says here selfish motives. Go into verse three, just keeps steamrolling ahead. Look at verse three. So, verse two, he says, Hey, you don't have because you don't ask carelessness. He said, But then when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask it wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so, selfish motives what he says is, Hey, You're praying for, you're desiring, you're going to God for, it's all things that will bring you more glory instead of bringing God glory. Author Paul Tripp said this, he said, when that happens, my desires become the center of my prayers, he said, I come to God with a list asking him to sign on the bottom rather than handing him a blank sheet and trusting him to fill it out as he sees fit. Check engine light. Lust, self-reliance, selfish motives. And then the fourth thing he lists in verse 4 is worldliness. Now, if you've ever grown up in church and maybe in a Baptist church background, my guess is at some point in your spiritual journey, you've heard an angry sermon in a Baptist church on worldliness. Am I right? Let's just be honest. You know the reason that Baptists are so against drinking? It's because we're afraid it's going to lead to dancing. Right? That's worldliness. You don't to do this and don't do that, those kind of things. Now, listen, God is against worldliness, but here's the reality. Most of the time when we try to make application of that, what ends up on our list, all these external kind of things, aren't the same things on God's list when he's talking about worldliness. Here's what worldliness is from the biblical perspective. It has very little to do with what's going on on the outside. Very little to do. All that can be the overflow. of it. But what worldliness is from God's perspective is this. It's valuing things that a godless culture may value. It's placing deep, deep value on things that in the economy of God have little to no value. You can fill in the blank of all kinds of things uh, in there. That's what he says in verse 4. Listen to this strong language in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity or at odds with God Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, what he's not saying here is that we shouldn't be winsome and friendly to to those who we know who may not be Christians. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying don't let yourself get sucked into valuing things that culture says have deep and high value when God says these things have little value. Listen, we live in a culture that celebrates fame. You know the Greek word for that? You should write this down here. It's pronounced. Kardashian, write that down, all right? <laughs> you know what's valuable in the economy of God? Humility. We live in a culture that values being served. In the economy of God, being a servant is what's valued. We live in a culture that values accumulation. Look how successful. Look at all they've accumulated in the economy of God. It's generosity that's valued. You see how it's different? Don't reduce worldliness down to playing cards or you know going to movies or those kinds of things. No, it's deeply valuing things that in the economy of God have no value at all. And so what he's saying here in this passage is that the conflict that's going on is not between two people. It's between an idol in your heart and God. He's saying the problem you're having conflict is you desire things that God does not desire for you. And so there's a war going on inside of your heart. And when you're convinced into thinking that these things, whatever they are, will finally and fully satisfy my heart, that I'm willing to go to war with anyone who will not meet my demands to provide them. Well, James isn't done. And so he's checking under the hood for the real source of conflict. Then he gives us an entire list of what to do next. So practical. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. And so here's the final point that James is arguing if you want to experience a conflict revolution, is this you should pursue peacemaking with great effort. I was listening to a sermon one time, and the pastor had something incredibly insightful to say. He said, There's only three kinds of people when it comes to conflict peacemakers, peacebreakers, and peacemakers. He said, peace fakers, avoid conflict at all costs and often bury it, even if it's still alive. By the way, that never works, right? I've watched Pet cemetery. Remember that? Buried that cat it came all jacked up. Remember that? It doesn't die. It just comes back angry. That's how conflict is. I'm going to stuff it. You can stuff it. It's going to grow. And a little... Root of bitterness takes root in the soil of your heart, and all of a sudden, it, it explodes in your life and defiles everyone around you. Those are peace fakers, avoiding conflict at all costs. Peace breakers are prideful. They power up. If they don't get in their way, they just blow up. But peacemakers see conflict not as an accident, but as an assignment to say, hey, I, I, don't, I don't like this. What's this conflict I'm experiencing? But I know this is an opportunity to grow spiritually. I know this is an assignment for the Lord to to glorify, to live for Him by being a peacemaker. And so James lists out in verses 7 through 10 the most practical action steps you could find here. Six of them. I mean, just boom, 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 boom if you want to be a peacemaker. So here's six steps out of the selfish cycle of personal conflict. I probably should have done that cat noise. I scared a baby this morning. I don't know if that's true, right? <laughs> Six steps out of the selfish cycle of conflict. Number one, these are all from the Bible. All right? So if you're like, I don't know if the Bible's relevant. Listen, these are right from the Bible this morning, okay? Number one, submit to God. Verse 7. The first thing is to simply acknowledge God's rightful place in your life. Or to put it another way, stop resisting. James is saying here, hey... Submit yourself to the Lord, because in conflict, what we're consumed with is what I want and what I think I need. And so, what He's saying is, resist here. Uh, this is simply consider not what you want; consider what the Lord wants in this situation. And so, it starts off with a posture of humble submission, saying, "Lord, I, I don't even know if I'm at fault here, but more than anything, I don't want to be right. I want You to be glorified in this situation. So, submit yourselves to God and His desire." in that conflict. Number two, resist the devil. Verse seven. You know what Satan wants? He wants you to be focused on your desires. I can read this far into the Bible in the Garden of Eden what happened in the fall of man. What did he say? He said, oh, God's holding out on you. God knows that you're not going to die. God knows that you're going to be like him, and that's what all of us want, right? We're glory thieves. We want to be just like God. That's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. And so he appealed to their natural desires. And so verse 70 says, resist the devil. Number three, draw near to God. Verse 8. This word and how it's used actually has an Old Testament worship context to it prayer, worship, reading the scriptures, all that's a part of the context here and central to the strategy of stepping out of self-sufficiency is the reminder of who God is and what he's like. And so this idea of drawing near to God, what does it look like in the real life that we're living? It happens through daily personal devotion and weekly corporate worship. You know why corporate worship is so important? Because as you travail through this life in this sin-cursed world in this side of eternity, then life and its hardships has a way of doing this, of shrinking the world down to the size of your problems. And when we come into worship and get a true picture of the majesty and the awe and the sovereignty of God, it reminds us that we worship a God who is sovereign over all of those circumstances. And so he says, draw near to God. And notice the promise. What happens if I do that? He'll draw near to you. Fourth thing he says, another draw near to God, number three, number four, reflect. Verse eight. In verse eight, he uses these phrases, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Now, what's he speaking about? These are the activities of the priests in the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, who are making intercession for the people of God, when they would go in to meet God on behalf of the people, these were the attitudes. And so the challenge to cleanse your hands means that we ask ourselves, what outward behavior needs to stop? And the challenge to purify our hearts is to look inwardly and say, what attitudes need to change? You know what we think in conflict? I know what attitude needs to change, the other person, amen? He says, no. That's what you think? You're trapped. He says, cleanse your hands. Let me just make this as plain as I can. Stop sinning against the other person. And purify your hearts. What's he saying? Look inside and say, man, I've got some selfishness, some attitudes here that are not experiencing this conflict. They're actually contributing to it. So he says, reflect. Verse 5, this is an odd one here, all right? Verse 5, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Now, this is not a call or an encouragement for us to be depressed, right? If like, listen, if you're living on this side of eternity, I don't need any help with that, am I right? Life can be hard, life can be challenging, life can be discouraging and depressing. So what's he saying here? What he's saying is he turns the tables on our natural desire for laughter and lightheartedness. And what he says is, there should be, when I'm experiencing conflict, some deep lament and mourning inside of me, knowing that I'm actively contributing to the ongoing conflict that we're experiencing. He's saying, let us mourn that our evil, selfish desires have spilled out of our hearts and are destroying the lives of other people, me included, who are defiled by our Bitterness. It says, so, Be wretched, mourn, and weep, confess, repent, and conflict. And here's the last thing he says, verse 10 humble yourself. Humble yourself. That's not only the last step, it's the summary statement of everything that he just said. We said earlier that self sufficiency is a pride issue, but a person who humbles themselves says, Lord, I don't have the capacity inside of me to fix what's going on around me. And so I'm putting myself at your mercy. I desperately need your help. We will not experience a conflict revolution apart from your intervention in my heart, Lord. Humble yourself. And you know what happens? We rarely do that. Why? Because our pride says, don't you admit that you're wrong." so in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves, If you're going to break the cycle. Now let's wrap things up this morning by going back to verse 6. Quickly, look at verse 6. What's he say? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who does he give grace to? The humble. What kind of grace is he describing? He's not talking about saving grace because he's writing to Christians in the early church. What he's talking about is empowering grace, where the grace of God empowers me to do what I would not do left to my sinful self and empowers me to do what I could not do left to myself. And so he says, hey, here's the good news. For those of you that need God's empowering grace to break free from these cycles of conflict, he gives more grace. Here's the good news. All the grace you need to break out of cycles of conflict in your life are available to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's the last thing I'll say. That incredible, empowering grace is only available to those who've experienced his saving grace. The Bible says this in Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Do you know the whole story of the Bible is a story of conflict? That God's sending his warrior king, Jesus Christ, to battle sin on our behalf. And here's the good news. Jesus has given us a savior who fights for you. You don't have to be strong because he was. And so if you want to experience a conflict revolution, the grace that comes, it all starts with experiencing the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so my question for you this morning is this. When it comes to Jesus... Do you know about him, or do you personally know him? And if you're here and saying, I don't know him, or I'm not sure if I know him, then I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to meet him. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you this simple but important question. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there been a time and a place or a season in your life where you came to the realization that you were sinful and that sin had separated you from God? And you acknowledged and said, Lord, I confess that sin that when I compare my life to the life of Jesus Christ, I don't measure up. He was perfect, and I'm not. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins, was buried, and rose the third day. And today, I want to receive Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. Today, I'm saying yes to a relationship with Jesus. And maybe some of you today... You're saying yes to Jesus for the first time. You say, I don't, I don't think I am a Christian. I don't know what it meant to be saved. I, I don't know if I am. But maybe some of you have said yes to Jesus a long time ago, and you meant it, but the relationship's gotten strained again. And so today, maybe you're saying yes again to Jesus. To renew the vibrancy of that relationship that already exists. To renew your walk with Jesus that may have started a long time ago, but it's gotten strained. And so if you're here today, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, and you're saying yes to Jesus or yes to Jesus for the first time in a while, I just want to pray for you. Just raise your hand and say, hey, that's me. I'm starting a relationship with Jesus, or I'm renewing my relationship with Jesus today. Anybody like that? I'll just put your hand up and say, hey, that's me. Pray for me. Amen. Anybody else? God, I pray for every person in the room today who needs to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, allow them to do what the Bible says, and humble themselves and admit that we need Jesus in our lives. God, for those who are renewing a relationship with Jesus today, God, help them be reminded of the truth today that you're not nearly as interested in where we've been as you are in where we're going. So, God, may they start a fresh journey with Jesus today. And God, we're grateful that when it comes to conflict in the world around us, our hope is in Jesus. For he alone can transform our hearts. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.